Hey, this is John F. Murs, author, actor, and owner of 1021 Studios, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. Hey everyone, and welcome back to CDY Blackout, your home from the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and joining me, as he always does, one of the originators of the show, Curtis Hughes is with us. Curtis, welcome back, man. Good to hear you again. Max, thanks so much for having me. How's everybody doing today? Uh, man, things are good. I've actually had two firsts over the past week, in one week, actually. I got to see Seattle for the first time, which is a beautiful nice. city. Went to uh, yep. Pike's Place Market, the Space Needle. Oh, yeah. All the wonderful places there. And then on the way home, I got fucking COVID. You got what? I got it for the first time. Three and a half years, I dodged this viral bullet. I thought, maybe I got some kind of super immune system, and I can't get it. Maybe I can't get other things, too. But turns out, no, I'm human like the rest of us, and I got fucking COVID. So you're telling me this thing is real, right? Surprisingly, yes. Surprisingly, yes. They kicked the, <laughs> and they kicked the crap out of me too. Actually, I, w- I was I was down for a couple of days, feeling better after that. I've been working from home since, so it's been like I, I've had like the week away traveling, and then I have a week away working from home. So, and now you get a third week away with COVID. Nice. Exactly. All right. so you, get, you can squeeze three weeks out of this, right? <laughs> Exactly. Lucky me. Lucky me. And how about you, sir? How have everything? How has everything been in your neck of the woods? Whose neck of the woods? My neck of the woods. Oh, I'm great. I, as I said earlier, you know, we were chit chatting before the start of this thing. You know, just had a very eventful weekend. You know, had a couple of mishaps with the kids, but other than that, you know, everybody's fine. And uh, it's a beautiful uh, Saturday morning here. I'm looking out the window. We've got rain. We've got wind gusts. You know, something about a. Uh, hurricane passing by over the next 24 hours something like that you yeah, know kind of glad i live i live in western mass i get to dodge all that stuff so but hopefully nice. stay safe sir stay inside don't go outside these things are nothing to mess with but you know what is fun to mess with sir that's politics what? politics sir no 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 we don't discuss politics on the show yes it we do happen. sometimes no we don't T- today we do uh-huh. Today we do. Today okay. we're going to be talking a lot about politics because, uh, because folks, if you ever want to get that insider's view of what DC is like, well, our next guest is the man for the job. He has written numerous books about this. He is a lawyer, a lobbyist. He ran, he ran for Congress, God knows why. And now we are here to talk about his recently released book, A Feeding Frenzy in Washington. George Franklin joins us. George, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, it's going to be a blast because reading about this book, reading about your background and all the other books you've done, you've you've led an interesting life, sir. You you you've been right there on on like the front lines of DC. We, you know, it was interesting. The other day was uh, the anniversary of nine eleven. One of the most interesting things I ever did in my life was I took Muhammad Ali to Ground Zero nine days after nine eleven. And it was one of the, it was surreal. And uh, what, what had happened was uh, people didn't realize Muhammad Ali lived in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And he had an old gangster's house, actually. It, was, it was on, had water on three sides. You could only get in one way. And uh, 
we got a call from uh, the governor's office wondering if we would get help get Muhammad Ali to ground zero because as a Muslim, he had spoken out against the violence. So on September 20th, about six in the morning, I got on the Kellogg jet, flew 10 minutes to Benton Harbor, Michigan, where we picked up Ali, his wife, Lonnie, uh, two of his associates. We flew to White Plains, where we had a police escort meet us, and they took us into the city. And it was the damnedest day of my life. And we went first to the fire station, where all the firemen basically had been killed. And the grief was unspeakable. It was that there were piles of flowers outside. There was the mayor was there, the governor was there, and, but all these people who had lost loved ones were there. And I show up with Ali. And the reaction was incredible. People, total strangers, would run up and grab them and hug them and he'd hug them and they'd start talking about where they were when he fought so and so and so and so. So we spent a while there, and then we went down to the missing person uh, operation at the docks, where on one wall there was hundreds of pictures of people just plastered on a wall. And we spent an hour or so there going around. And once again, total strangers would come up and hug on them and hug them and grab them. And, uh, and then finally, at the end of the day, we went to ground zero. And I went through what I never thought I'd ever see in my life, went through a military checkpoint on the streets of New York, where we got where the World Trade Center was basically, I'm going to guess it was 13 stories of smoking rubber, still smoking. I mean, this was only nine days after 9-11. And we spent a few hours going around tent to tent to tent where the uh, workers were there. They had, you know, every kind of emergency responder you could imagine. And uh, then we got back on the plane, flew, got back to White Plains, flew back to Michigan. And I got home sitting in my living room about one o'clock in the morning in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I was like, did I really do this? I mean, it was so surreal. And I woke up the next morning and I'm not kidding. It was like, did I dream I did this? Did I really do what I did yesterday? It was, it was the damnedest day I've ever had. I'll bet. And really just one of many, 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 many days you've had over the years working in various forms and functions. And of course, this new role you have as a writer. You've written uh, now four books to date. Uh, this one, we should say, before we begin this discussion, is a work of fiction. It's not real, although it's going to sound right. very real, because this is a look at the politicians, lobbyists, and the assorted scalawags, your, your words, not mine, right. although, I will agree, <laughs> although I will agree with you, who work behind the scenes to create public policy. I guess the thing I want to start with is just what led to this book's creation. I thought it was time. Let's all sit back and laugh at ourselves a little bit. I mean, we got to lighten up here. Um, People have gotten so dogmatic and so zealous about all these positions that I think it's, it's, it's fundamentally unhealthy. And I think we need, like I said, to stand back and just let's laugh at ourselves a little bit. It's, uh, we're we're going to make it somehow. We're going to get all through this. I mean, in 1860, we had a civil war. We were shooting at each other. Somehow we made it through that. So um, what I tried to do is that you, you nailed it, though, Max, is there's a thread of reality. It's fictional stories. It's fictional characters. But they're really composites 
of real stories and real people and the real characters and how Washington really works. So if, if you read the book, hopefully you get a lot of good laughs. Uh, it's zany. If you like Carl Hyacin or you like Christopher Buckley, uh, I think you're going to like this book. But you're also going to learn something about how lobbyists work and what they do and what goes on behind the scenes. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lampooning of Congress with a little educational aspect to it. I like that because I actually don't know much about what a lobbyist does. I mean, you, you see the stuff in movies and TV shows, which I'm sure is entirely accurate. Um, but can you explain yeah. what a lobbyist is? What do they do? You're an advocate. You're a salesperson. In fact, when I, I spent 25 years with Kellogg Company, I was the vice president of worldwide government affairs. And the sales guys used to always kid me. They'd say, Franklin Hill, you're a salesman. You should just be with us in the sales force. And, and they're right. You're a salesperson. And you're selling ideas. You're selling positions. You're an advocate. The idea that it's interesting that lobbyists have this image. This image, I know what it is. I, I'm realistic enough that you know, they're wheeling, dealing behind the scenes, you know, scoundrels and scallywags, as you like to say it. The reality is quite the opposite if you're a good lobbyist. Because what you are selling is trust. And you're selling that people have to believe you. You can go pull a fast one on a politician one time. You're out of business after that. If they don't trust you, if they don't believe you, if they don't respect and have confidence in you, you're out of business. So they have to realize when I would lobby people, I would tell them what I would hope that they would do. But then I would also tell them who's going to be mad at them if they do it, who's going to be happy with them if they do it, and what the negatives are that come with it. And sure, I'd, I'd, I'd sell more on my side than the other side, but you got to give them a heads up of what's coming down the road. So um, it, it, a little, there's a lot of misconception about that. In fact, my first book, it's called Raisin Bran and Other Serial Wars. And I wrote it. I worked with a lot of really smart people at Kellogg, and they had degrees from all sorts of fancy schools. And I started to realize the one thing they didn't have a clue about was government relations. So I was on the board of Western Michigan University at big business school. I called the dean. And I called her. I said, do you teach government relations? And she goes, well, no, that's political science. And I said, well, that's interesting because every major company in the United States has a government relations department, just like sales, finance, and marketing. But business schools just pretend like it doesn't exist. So I wrote the first book to tell people what, explain what lobbyists, what I really did as a lobbyist to tell us, and what lobbyists really do as opposed to what people think they do. It was meant as an adjunct for business schools, and if I do say so, it did pretty well. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're, you're definitely right about the misconceptions because I've always seen lobbyists as these very like kind of like uh, sharky snake oil salesmen. Oh they're, yeah, they're, they'll, they'll yeah, do yeah. anything <laughs> to kind of get the politician to like vote their way. They'll pull kinds of chicanery. Like I said, wheeling and dealing, you know, the slicked back hair and the sharp suits and whatnot, all all these different things. I'm kind of curious, though, where you were the lobbyist for Kellogg, what kind of things were you uh, working on? Advertising, marketing, tariffs. 
trade issues. I, I always got the question. I said, uh, well, early in my career, I, used to, I, I was a lawyer in private practice. I had a little firm with another guy. And I was doing work for the National Soft Drink Association. I did work for McDonald's. And I started doing work for Kellogg. And Kellogg didn't have a full-time Washington person then. So for about four years, I was kind of de facto Washington guy. But I'd always get the question is, why does, why does Kellogg need a lot? I got it all the time. Perfectly good to, question, right? Right, yeah. Oh, great question. And, and my response is, it's the same as General Motors, Dow Chemical, or uh, Exxon, right? It's a big international company that has issues, taxes, trade, tariffs, marketing, advertising. You, know, you go down the list of activities, it's a huge, big multinational company that's affected like every other big business. And you know, the line they love to use in Washington is kind of worn out, but it's actually pretty true. If you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. Well, if you don't want to be on the menu. So Kellogg, like all big companies, needed someone, needs someone to look after them in, as far as the government and what they're trying to do to them or we're trying to do to them. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about the characters because I've read a bit about them and certainly they definitely seem very familiar because they seem to reflect a lot of the folks we're dealing with today. You know, the far left, the far right, the person in the middle. I'm curious where the characters came from. Did you wind up basing them on folks that you knew or worked with? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, they're composite. Uh, They will remind you of some people. I'm first to admit that, but they are not that person. Um, But over 30 years of lobbying, I've seen all sorts of characters, elected officials, coming and going. And people now, they're trying to act like all this is new. Well, that I couldn't have scripted the timing of the introduction of this book any better. It's about in a big appropriations bill. And it's, it's time, it's about a big appropriations bill that is exactly what is underway right now in Washington. That's going to end up in some omnibus bill that could, that the Congress has 12 appropriation bills. They have to pass every year to fund the government and keep it going. Now, with two weeks to go, hello, where have you been? Right? You've had, you, it's not like this is a surprise. It was coming. But here we are again. They haven't passed any of them. And so what they're going to end up doing is put them all together. And I think it's going to be about $1.7 trillion. No one's going to know what the hell's in there. Okay, there's no way in the world you're going to know what's in there. And there's going to be all sorts of nooks and crannies and, and aspects of it that people don't realize are in there. They're going to go vote for it to keep the government running. Well, they're all running around like this is something new. This has been going on for years. It happens almost every year. And so the book, I've got this ag appropriations bill where there's a lobbyist named P.J. Snakeboot Jackson, okay? He's the lead lobbyist, and uh, he represents different agricultural interests in, in the agricultural appropriations bill. And as I mentioned before, it, it dances around with reality in the form of fiction. P.J. Snakeboots Jackson. That is a phenomenal character name. I think actually one of my favorite character names that we've ever come across in quite a while. <laughs> Sounds like something I would hear in wrestling, right? Yeah. Well, well, you know, <laughs> and, you know, uh, Curtis. When you mentioned that Lee Atwater was this sort of famous or infamous Republican political consultant, 
And he used to say, if you want to know what the American people are thinking, watch wrestling and listen to country music. And there's a lot of truth to it. He said, that's the only two things you got to do. And you know that, what people are thinking. That's amazingly accurate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that, that is, yeah. Probably. Well, it's like, it's like this guy, I got a curse. What's the guy that came out with this big hit now? It's Dork of Richmond or uh, the country guy. He just came out with it like two weeks ago. And it's like number one on the charts. And uh, I think it's something, the title of something like North of Richmond, talking about all these bozos in Washington, North of Richmond don't have a clue. Well, it's number one on the country charts. So country music and wrestling. Yeah. that You know what? You're right. And actually wrestling has given us some politicians. So think about that. Yeah. And PJ, he, he's a composite of a bunch of lobbyists I've known for years. And uh, really? I had fun yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. Was it hard to not be just like, okay, I'll just take this this person that I knew back then and make them kind of make them a character? No, I, you know, when I tell people, I said, write the book, making fun of Congress. I have so much to work with every day. I was overwhelmed. Okay. And so it, that I, I didn't have to go too far back in history to have current foolishness to, uh, to work with. But the people, yeah, the people are 30 some years of politicians and lobbyists and other people like that. I like that. I like that. Do you feel like this book is meant for more one side or the other, or does it kind of cater to both? I, I, I hopefully it's bipartisan fun. I, I made a point of having Republicans and Democrats and trying to make it bipartisan as, as I could. Um, well, in fact, I'll tell you when I first started writing the book, it was speaker Bogosi. Okay. We had Speaker Bogosi, and then the House flipped and went Republican, so it became Speaker McCruddy. So that kind of gives you an idea. I was uh, I was very bipartisan when I approached it. Yeah. Uh, when did you start writing this? It was uh, well. The idea came up obviously when when the Democrats were still. It was at the end of the last Congress mm. when I came up with the idea of it, and so I started sort of putting pen to paper with Speaker Bogosi, and then uh, when it flipped. I don't know what time is that? Is that um, ten months ago, a year ago? I guess something like that. Yeah. Wow. So, so you, so you really right in the midst of just all this political stuff that we're dealing with right now. Yeah. Well, I lived it, so I have I have a feel for what goes on. I I left Washington years ago, but I, I think it's a perspective of someone outside the Beltway looking back at mm. and, and making fun of the foolishness that goes on and people taking it so seriously all the time then let's let's lighten up here a little bit oh yeah yeah i i can't tell you how many times i've heard the words unprecedented when it comes to something going on in washington there's like and it's not unprecedented yeah we've never seen anything before we've never this has never happened before i'm thinking probably has actually it always happens it's all the same all the time you never hear about it but yeah always happening yeah yeah and it, it hasn't changed that much uh it, it's a little more vicious. It's a little less, it's more partisan. I think that's a result of cable news and the um, sort of the nationalization of congressional races. They're all national races now. It used to be sort of more local. You, you guys are from Boston. Here's a, here's a fun Tip O'Neill story. Uh, he, he was great. Tip O'Neill, I loved him. I was a young lawyer lobbyist. I got to spend some time with him. He always had a great story. And, uh, one time he was talking about when he was a young congressman, there used to be a lot of chocolate or candy manufacturing in Boston. I think I think I'm right on that. Mm-hmm. 
And there also was in Chicago. And John Kennedy, President Kennedy was president. And there was a trade bill coming up. And so it, it adversely affected the candy industry. So Tip O'Neill and this uh, congressman from Chicago get called to the White House. And the president says, okay, guys, you know, I need you to vote for this bill. And uh, once you vote for it, it passes. I'll fix that problem in there for you. I can fix it after the fact by doing X, Y, or Z. Okay, okay. So the day the vote comes up, and Tip O'Neill goes out on the floor, and he pulls the lever, yes, you know, he votes yes. And all of a sudden, the guy from Chicago votes no. So he hustles across the floor, and he goes, you know, hey, Charlie, you know, what the hell are you doing? You know, you heard the president vote for the thing, and he'll fix it afterwards. He goes, yeah, I heard from the president. I also heard from Mayor Daly, and I'm voting no, right? Well, that there aren't many Mayor Daly's left. And you've got this all these races have become nationalized and CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. And um, it, so it is less bipartisan. There's less camaraderie than there was before, which I think is a shame. Yeah. With regards to the characters of the book, um, I had two questions I wanted to ask real quick because I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, which character? Do you feel uh, resonates the most with you, and which character is your favorite? PJ is my favorite by far, uh, just because where he, where he comes from and what he does. The, the the trade association people I talk about in the book, I think, are fun, and they they have a role that people aren't quite aware of how important trade associations are. They think of individuals and they think of you know, individual lobbyists, if you would. But the trade associations in the book are the three legs of the stool of, of, the, of what we eat. I mean, it's the farmers who grow it. It's the manufacturers who make it in the food. And it's the grocery stores that sell it. And those three trade associations um, have huge impact on what we eat, how much it costs, where it is, what's available. Uh, the farm bill coming up now will be a great example of their influence and impact. And, and so I, I, had, I had fun using them in a humorous way. But once again, it, I think it educates people on who they are and what they do and how they really impact your daily life. Any characters that sort of represent people that you were constantly butting, butting heads with? Well... It's interesting. When I ran for Congress, I ran as a Democrat. Okay, I so saw I, that. I am, yeah. a De- I am a Democrat. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, and there aren't many corporate execs that are Democrats, or there are not not as many as you know should be. But what's interesting is the character you're talking about. The more liberal members of Congress, when I was the lobbyist for Kellogg, tend to be our adversaries. These sort of the consumer groups, if you would. Uh, so we would be butting heads with them. But on the other hand, once again, the ways of Washington makes, you know, the old strange bedfellows bit. Um, the same consumer advocates that would be opposing us were on our side when, for instance, we were opposing the sugar program, okay? Because they wanted to do away with the U.S. sugar program just as much as we did for different reasons, but we were on the same side. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, some, of, some of these members of Congress were would have been my adversaries when I was a lobbyist for industry uh, but you never know when they're on on the same side so uh, it, it flips around that's mm-hmm. the, the constant of Washington 
I always just tell people, think when you, when you say special interest, I have no idea what that word means. That means nothing. That word means everybody is a special interest. If you're the NRA, and I mean restaurants or rights, either one, you're a special interest. If you're the Sierra Club, you're a special interest. If you're the teachers union, you're a special interest. It's a meaningless phrase. This, a special interest are the people opposed to you because it has this negative connotation. Right. But as a substantive thing, it means nothing. Also, when people say you're pro-business, half the time, I don't even know what that means. Let's take, for instance, the Export-Import Bank. Not simply what that is, the Export-Import Bank loans money to companies outside the United States to buy stuff from the United States. So you say, well, hell, that's pro-business, right? That's good for business in the United States. If you're Boeing, where you just left, Max, out in Seattle, that's great. It's pro-business. That means Aer Lingus, Air France can buy, you know, get cheap money and buy big jets from Boeing and, you know, uh, it's great for business in America. If you're Delta Airlines, it's anti-business. They're saying, why in the world is the company supporting, why, why in the world are we supporting our competitors? Pro-business depends on who you are. Hmm. So you hear these phrases thrown around Washington all the time. Most of them mean nothing. What you have to look at is issue by issue. You know, one last thing, it's like when President Trump put in the tariff on uh, solar panels. People say, well, that's great, right? He's going to help the U.S. solar panel industry compete with China. It's good. But if you're in the solar panel installation business, it hurt you because cost of solar panels just went up. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What's pro-business? So there you are. So you're telling me all the buzzwords the media throws around are wrong. Oh my God. They're not wrong. They're just, they're privileged. They don't mean anything. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Yeah. They, you know, like I said, special interests are the people opposed to you. I mean, whoever was opposed to me, they're a special interest because it has this dastardly connotation. <laughs> the people who were, who were opposed to you, I'm actually curious, were you able, like, were they, were they your opponents in that moment? And then afterwards you were getting like a beer with them and hanging out and having fun? Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and um, well, the sugar industry, folks, one time, one of the guys that ran the Florida Sugar Cane Association, the U.S. sugar program costs the American food industry hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And how that works is the Department of Agriculture basically sets a price for sugar that is like double the world price. So if you're in the food business, that's a pretty expensive program. And we're, you know, most food companies were adamantly opposed to it. But when you're getting attacked for advertising to children because your products contain sugar, those same sugar lobbyists are also on your side at this on that juncture. So it's the issue. It changes daily, it changes weekly. This book sounds like it was a lot of fun to write. It was a blast. It was a blast. <laughs> I had a great time. Oh man. How do you feel to get it out there to be like released, you know, out of the world? Because at this time of this recording, it's been out for uh, like a little under a week. So how do you feel yeah. when release day rolled around? Oh, it's fun. It's always a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of shows like this, which are great. This is these are always fun because you guys are fun. And, um, you know, just to talk about the whole issue and lobbying. And, and I enjoy marketing the book as much as I do writing it. 
because it gives me a chance to talk about lobbyists and what they do in Washington. And, and it's a peek behind the curtain, what really goes on in Washington. I always try to tell people, lobbyists run in packs like wolves. And that's one thing you'll see in this book. Because food lobbyists hang out with other food lobbyists. Because they work the same committees, they got the similar issues, so they hang out together. The bank people hang out with the defense people, hang out with the defense people. Sounds like so, my cafeteria lunch table in high school. Yeah, it's pretty close. It's, your, your high school cafeteria is probably more sophisticated. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's fun to be able to talk about it and explain it because people say, you know, what do lobbyists do? What, what do y'all really else do? Yeah, so it's yeah. a great mystery that surrounds it. It's actually a pretty simple business. Now I'm getting this picture in my head of of, of like a scene from uh, West Side Story with like one group of lobbyists facing off against another like group of lobbyists. And they're all wearing like the same like matching jackets and doing the songs and whatnot. <laughs> right. Well, and sometimes you end up just one on one, and I, I won't go on the details of it, but um, it, there was a big thing about Kellogg and Raisin Bran getting into a federal program. And there was a consumer advocacy group that opposed it. And Senator Levin of Michigan, who I think everyone would agree is one of the most decent, honorable guys that ever served. Republicans would totally agree with that. I got a call from him and he said, I want you to come up my office and sit down with um, this guy who's a consumer advocate for the consumer group. And I want, I want to hear this out. So he had the two of us sit in his office with his chief of staff and the senator and debate the issue. So, you know, we, we, we went at it. And thankfully on this one, I, I prevailed. He said, you know, told the guy, he said, hey, I'm, I'm with the company on this one. But there were many times he wasn't for us. And the other times he would not, not be on our side. But so that, those are the kind of things you do as a lobbyist that people don't really realize what goes on on a daily basis. Aside from Senator Levin, were there others, other like politicians or lobbyists that you regard as being just like close friends or people that you really admire? Yeah, yeah. There was, um, I'm trying to think some of them, you know, there was Sen- Senator Coverdale of Georgia. He was a Republican. He was, he was a total class actor. Uh, he, he was a really decent guy. Um, once again, Senator Isaacson from Georgia. He was a good, decent guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's some, you wonder how the hell I got there and wish they'd never shown up. But on the other hand, there's, there are, you know, a lot of good, decent people there and they're not, they're not all the, the, uh, you know, characters that people try to make them up to be. Um, but the other thing you find out, Max, is I mean, no issue is simple. It, this used to drive me crazy. I'd go back to Battle Creek Corbin headquarters. And people take it. Why don't they just do what's right? Why can't they just do what's right? And I look at them, I say, because the problem is what you think is right isn't what those other people think. And it's never simple. It is never simple. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, spoiler alerts here, but, that, you know, the, the Wienermobile gets hijacked by vegans, okay, on the way to Washington. It's part of the book, okay? And no! they're trying to make national dog deck, an actual deck, okay? And you say, you know, well, what, what's the problem with hot dogs? Well, as I bring out the book, there are a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't be eating hot dogs. And, you know, hot dogs shouldn't be honored. And it's, 
There's no such thing as a simple issue in Washington. It always gets complicated. Vegan stealing the vegan stealing the hot <laughs> the dog wheel. My God, my God, there's nothing and secret we got, anymore. We got the two, and you know the hot hot doggers are the, what they call the drivers, and they have uh, they have hot dogger names. So we have Molly Mustard and Peter Pork are driving the wiener mobile, and they end up. And Curtis, I love this one. One time, I'm walking around the mall one day. And everybody knows there's a Jefferson Memorial, there's a Lincoln Memorial, there's FDR. And I looked down this little cul-de-sac. It's the George Mason Memorial. I said, what the hell is this thing? So I asked somebody about it. No one knows it exists, right? And it's been there for umpteen years. So the Wienermobile gets hijacked and they hide it at the George Mason Memorial. On the <laughs> because it's a place no one ever goes or knows what the hell he is. They don't know who George Mason is to begin with. So anyway, it's, it's just fun stuff like that. Oh but my God. It, uh, it gives awesome. you the, the ebb and the flow and the feel of Washington of things that go on. All right. Now, as I mentioned before, this is your fourth book. Uh, you released Incentives, which is a book of fiction, and then Razor Brand and Other Serial Wars. That's that's nonfiction. And then, so you think you want to run for Congress, also nonfiction. Did this take you in any new directions as a writer? Yeah. Um, I think you were, you were referencing before I'd written two, two uh, nonfiction about yep. Razor Brand and Other Serial Wars. And then I wrote, So You Think You Want to Run for Congress. Mm-hmm which in a moment of temporary insanity, I actually did run for Congress. I found out that becoming second out of six, that doesn't work, but it was, it was, uh, that's the most exhausting thing I've ever did. And, and I will say guys that I don't care what your politics are, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, libertarian. I'm I have the utmost respect for anyone willing to jump into the arena. It is exhausting. It is. Yeah. I, I I just I look back on that, and um, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, and thank God people do it. So somebody's got to do it. But it's vicious. It's um, it, it goes on. You got to raise all this money, and uh, that sort of never ends. And I don't know how we get out of that. I mean, it's it's horrible, but that's the reality. And you know the problem is the big gorilla is still that TV in your living. They can talk social media all they want, but it was an amazing experience. The ones that ads went on air, how people would like stop you in grocery stores. They'd come up and I had, I had an ad, uh, Curtis, you've got a little girl. I have two grown girls. Um, I had an ad with my two daughters in it and people would stop me on the streets and say, Hey, you're the guy with the daughter. You're the guy with the, you know, and, and it was, it was amazing. Uh, but writing fiction is, is harder than writing nonfiction. Um, because when I wrote the first two, I could just sort of go through my notes and relay my experiences and, you know, explain what I was going through and what happened. But yeah, writing fiction is, uh, is, is, it's more difficult, it's more difficult, but it's fun. You know? I'll bet. I'll bet. So what is next for you? That's the big question. What is next? Do we have another book coming up? Yeah. I think I got, I got another one in me. I think, you know, Congress is, keeps giving me all this material. I can't handle it all. It, uh, you know, one of the things in there, um, I talk about, uh, there was a Congress person that issued a tweet saying, once you start those gazpacho tactics, right? And they meant to say gazpacho, but they wrote gazpacho, okay? So I thought, 
I can't make this stuff up. I mean, these people are out there. I mean, <laughs> and it keeps coming. So I, I think I'm going to do a follow-up on this because um, I end the book talking about, oh, here's, here's a funny thing. Here's where reality is again. I end up the book where PJ hold, has lunches at this place called The Pump. And this actually happens in Washington. So what will happen is you'll be one of these fancy restaurants and you PJ's there with a the client. And, you know, Congressman Schnort or Senator so-and-so come up to the table. And they say, hey, you know, what are you doing here? So they, they immediately, PJ said, well, this is my client, Charles. You know, he's in the petroleum industry. And so the congressperson always goes, you got the best lobbyist there. This is the greatest guy in town. No one, no one can beat him. And then PJ will say, well, Senator, you know what we need is you need your help with this issue and that issue. And, you know, because old Charlie here, you know, there'll be thousands of jobs lost and the Western world will collapse unless you do this. And it'll be the end of the world as we know. Invariably, the member of Congress will say, let me know how I can help. I'll help in any way I can. And then they walk away. Well, they ain't going to help doing anything. They probably didn't even understand what they were talking about. Okay. But it's this kabuki dance that ends up every conversation. Let me know how I can help. I'd be glad to help in any way I can. And uh, the book ends with PJ back in his favorite haunt with a potential new client. And um, I, I think that a sequel could easily flow from uh, where we left it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, George, we're coming down to the end of the conversation, but a few more questions before we go. Hearing about your background, your experience, I kind of want to get your take on just democracy now. You know, what's your take on just the government as a whole? Yeah, well, I'll sort of be contradictory. Uh, I think it is a little, uh, well, first of all, I go back to none of this is new. It's, It's all gone on before. This whole business about, you know, stopping the government and running out of money and all this, you know, that, so none of that is new. Um, I, I am concerned about the whole tone of politics now, the viciousness that's underway and, and the lack of relationship. Basically, you sort of went and lived in Washington, right? You'd go there and spend months, but your kids would go to school there. And you get build relationships with other members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats. I love to tell the story back to Tip O'Neill. Um, uh, when when uh, he was speaker, Bob Michael was the minority leader at the uh, for the Republicans. He was from Illinois. Well, they were great buddies. One time, we're a bunch of lobbyists downtown. We're going blah blah blah. Whether you know Congress is going to be in session or not, lobbyists do a lot of blah blah blah. By the way, and they. Uh, so anyways, it came up whether Congress is going to be in session. And one of the people there who knew them both said, I guarantee you Congress is not going to be in session. He said, why? He said, well, the Speaker and Bob Michael have a tea time at 2 o'clock on Friday. Okay. Well, they don't have tea times at 2 o'clock anymore, uh, which is, is not healthy. It's not good. The, the tone needs to change. Everybody needs to, uh, it needs to be less vicious and uh, less dogmatic. because. A cowboy from Montana really doesn't have anything in common with a Hispanic from Harvard. And you have to compromise, okay? Other than maybe love of the country and the flag. But between the two of them, there's a big gulf there. And so that that member of Congress from Montana and that member of Congress from Harlem need to compromise. And that that's the spirit that's being lost that we have underway right now. 
do you think we're going to make it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Once again, in 1860, we had a full-scale war. I mean, this ain't nothing compared to that. I, I think there's flows. You know, the, the politics of the country ebb and flow, and I think we're in a, a downdraft right now, but I think we'll all come back and we'll do this fine. All right, all right. Well, George, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great talking to you about this book, um, A Feeding Frenzy in Washington, now available. You go to georgefranklinauthor.com. All the info is there. Get your copy of the book. I guarantee you, if you're at all into politics, you're going to love this book. And Matt, and Matt Kurtz, tell your uh, listeners that, you know, if they ever have a question or want to pop you a note or something, you can do it through my website. I'll be glad. And I love talking to college students. I, I go on the college circuit with these books, which is great. So if anybody has any interest in that, just give me a holler. Will do. Will do. Sounds good. And with that, we bring this episode to a close. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, check us out on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can catch this and all your favorite episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And new episodes are added every week, as well as on Boston Free Radio every Saturday at 10 p.m. You get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com if you want to suggest a guest, submit your music, or just drop us a line. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.